everyone, and welcome to another edition of Criminal Discourse Podcast. I'm Trish, and I'm solo with you this week. Unfortunately, Maddie wasn't able to make it, so I'm going to do this one solo. But before we get started, I wanted to give some special shout outs to some listeners that reached out to us. One from Nancy from Dover, PA. Wanted to thank her for her kind words of encouragement. And to Anel54, who left us a review on Apple iTunes UK, who said that we have no unnecessary waffle. And I'm sure she doesn't mean the delicious breakfast treats. So thank you both for reaching out to us. If you would like to reach us to let us know what you think or even have a case suggestion, you can do so through our website, Criminal criminaldiscoursepodcast.com. On there, you will find all of our episodes and our show notes along with the resources we use to bring you our episodes. So go ahead and check that out. You can also reach out to us through our Instagram page at Criminal Pod, And we have a Facebook page, Criminal Discourse Podcast, and our YouTube channel by the same name. Now, before we get started, I do have some crime news updates. We talked about this in our last episode, Julius Jones. Julius Jones was granted a stage two commutation hearing, and this came in a three to one vote on March 8th. So now this advances to a hearing that will take place in June. The other crime news that I have for you is for Christian Martin trial. That that case takes place in Kentucky. Christian Martin has been in jail awaiting a triple murder trial. So the judge ended up denying the motion to dismiss the indictment. So his trial is set to go also in June of this year. Okay, we're going to jump right into it. And the case I'm going to share with you today came from looking through YouTube one night. I came across a 60 Minutes Australia episode, which caught my interest, so I ended up watching it all, and I thought, oh, that's a pretty fascinating case. I think I want to look into that one further, so we can thank 60 Minutes Australia for this. So we're going back to Brisbane, Australia. Now, we were there before for a case, and that was the Tiffany Taylor Jade Kendall cases we covered in September. So Brisbane is a city in the Queensland state in Australia, and again, it is the third most populated city in the country. It is named after the river it is located next to. So even though it's along a river, the city built an urban beach that's the size of five Olympic swimming pools, and it's called Streets Beach. And each year, 80 tons of white sand are trucked in to help maintain the beach. I've seen pictures. It's it's gorgeous. So on Friday, April 20th, 2012, around 7.12 a.m., Gerard Baden-Clay phoned authorities to report his 43-year-old wife, Allison was missing. Now, Allison had gone for a walk sometime in the early morning hours from their western affluent neighborhood of Brookfield, something she did regularly, according to Gerard, but she had not returned home in time for breakfast. Now, this was also the story he would end up telling Allison's parents. Now, the police immediately began their missing persons investigation, asking neighbors if they had seen anything or can recall seeing either of the Baden Clay's cars between the hours of 8.30 p.m. that Thursday night through 8 a.m. Friday. Now, the Baden Clains own two vehicles. They owned a Holden Captiva and a Toyota Prado. I don't believe either of those models are U.S. models. An immediate search was begun by authorities involving hundreds of volunteers and police that would continue for about 10 days. Now, this was an exhaustive search over difficult terrain, and it involved helicopters, police on horseback searching nearby mountain forest area in the Deangular National Park, along with firefighters searching closed mines 
mine shafts. And all of this was coordinated by Sergeant Sharky Lang, which is, in my opinion, the best name ever. And on April 23rd, police would even set up a mannequin in the Baden Clay's front yard with the same outfit Allison was last seen wearing as reported by Gerard. Now, I'll be honest with you. I've read two accounts where he said she left in the early morning hours to take a walk, but I also, in the 60 Minutes special, they mentioned that she took a walk late in the evening. So this would have been around 10.30 p.m. So the outfit she was wearing was the last thing he had seen her wearing that night. So in the end, it would not be the police that would find Allison, but a kayaker who was on the Koholo Creek, which was near Anstead, and this was on April 30th. Where she was found was 30 kilometers, or 8 miles, along the muddy banks of the creek around 11 a.m., and she was wearing the exercise attire, lying on her side with her arms splayed out in an advanced stage of decomp. Her blue top had been pulled up over her head as what would happen if she had been dragged to that location. Allison's identity would be confirmed through dental records. Now, Allison June Dickey was born on July 1st, 1968. She was the second of three children born to Priscilla and Jeff Dickey. She grew up in the working class neighborhood of Red Bank and started her interest in ballet at the age of four. And this is an interest that would be a lifelong interest for her. She had even hoped of one day opening her own ballet studio. In 1994, at the age of 25, Allison won the Miss Brisbane Beauty pageant. Now, Allison, just to describe her, stood about five foot six inches tall and had a slim build. She was gorgeous. And Allison was also very accomplished in that she spoke five languages, six of you include English. She spoke Japanese, Dutch, French, German, and Swedish. Now, Allison was working for Flight Center, which I believe is an airport, as she was head of human resources there. And that is when she met Gerard Baden-Clay, who was working out of their tumble office. And the two started to date, and in 1997, they married on August 23rd. Now, Gerard Baden-Clay was born on September 9th, 1970 in Bournemouth, England, and he grew up in Zimbabwe and then moved to Australia when he was around 10 years old with his parents and two younger siblings. Now, he was the great-grandson of Scout's founder, Robert Baden-Powell. Now, in the United States, we refer to the Scouts as actually the Boy Scouts of America. And to just describe Gerard, he stands about six foot tall with short brown hair and had an average build. Now, after Gerard and Allison married, they moved to England for a time, and that was until about 1999 when they returned to Australia. In 2004, Gerard and Allison were both working for Century 21 Real Estate Company, where Gerard was the managing director. Now, eventually, he would enter into a partnership with two others to take over the business, with Gerard handling the finances for their company. Gerard and Allison would go on to have three children, all of them girls. In 2007, Tony McHugh was a client of Gerard's real estate business and soon was taken on as an agent. Now, Tony at the time was in a relationship and she was a mother of two. And in August of 2008, both of them would enter into an affair. They were each telling each other their marital problems, with Gerard telling Tony that he was only in his marriage for his daughters and he didn't love his wife. Tony would end up leaving her relationship of 17 years to be with Gerard. Now, Gerard had told Tony that he did plan on leaving Allison and one day marrying her. But 
three and a half years later, really it was going on four, they were still together in this secret affair. But Allison had found out, took three and a half years, but she found out about the affair, which resulted not only in the ending of the affair, but Tony being fired from her job. And this was in October of 2011. Now she eventually went to work for Remax Real Estate Company that a friend had helped her secure. Now this friend had been one of Gerard's business partners at Century 21. And that's of course how they met Tony. Now, the ending of their relationship, however, did not last long, because about four months later, the two would reconnect. The pair had met at a coffee shop where Gerard showed up not wearing his wedding ring and told Tony that he loved her. And he did plan on leaving his wife, even though in the past he said he couldn't. And he gave her a number of reasons of why he could not leave Allison. One of them was due to her suffering from depression. Apparently, when they were on their honeymoon, Allison had taken a malaria drug. And for whatever reason, she had a very negative reaction to that. And it resulted in some lingering depression. So she dealt with that for years. So that was one of the reasons he gave. He gave the other reasons. He didn't want to leave the girls, especially with Allison. And also financially, he couldn't afford a divorce. So at this time, when they reconnected, Gerard decided to establish a fake email account so the two could communicate with each other without Allison knowing. Now, per Gerard, what he told Tony was Allison was looking at his phone calls and his text messages and had even placed a curfew on him. Now, all of this about impending divorce would have come as a surprise to Allison since the couple were going through marriage counseling and had no plans of divorcing. In fact, the couple had attended marriage counseling session just three days before her disappearance. So Gerard Bain Clay liked to put on appearances of being this middle-class devoted husband and father. It was very important, his standing in the community and how the community viewed him. So that was his public image. The other side was something different. So of course, he had reignited his affair with Tony McHugh, and he didn't really seem to be working on his marriage as much as Allison was, and usually was degrading Allison openly in front of others. When Gerard and Tony would go away on business trips, especially later in the years of their affair, they would be openly infectionate to one another publicly. So others that worked in the real estate office would often see this. They knew something was up. Now, Allison didn't really work, even though they started out at the Century 21 business together. I believe by the time she had her children, she in and out of the business. She wasn't didn't sound like she was a full-time employee. So she wasn't there a lot of the times to see what was going on in the office. So Gerard's other issues were financial, and he owed a lot of money to various friends and business associates. Now, at one point, Gerard had told his business partners, he had two of them, that they were in financial trouble which really shocked them as they had been having an excellent year financially. So they were wondering like, well, where's all this money going? So the company ended up needing to borrow some money to stay afloat. And all three partners agreed that any money going out of the business had to have all three of their signatures on it, meaning Gerard was no longer allowed to be the only one dealing with the finances. Now, this only lasted a couple of weeks with Gerard confronting his partners feeling like he didn't want to keep coming to them to get their signatures. And he felt like, well, it feels like you don't trust me. With one of his partners telling him, yeah, I don't trust you because there's a lot of questions here regarding the finances. So this upset Gerard and he wanted to buy them out of the business and then ended up borrowing more money to start doing that. Superintendent Mark Ainsworth was leading the investigation into Allison's now murder. Investigators found a boatload of evidence of Gerard's affair with Tony, not to mention 
mention the financial difficulties Gerard had gotten himself into. What they discovered is that on April 19th, Gerard had a conversation with Tony around 5 p.m. And he told Tony that she and Allison actually would be at the same real estate training the next day, something he knew about but didn't bother to tell either woman. So Tony got a little upset about this. Like, how are you springing this on me now? You know, she knows who I am. I know who she is. This could be a very awkward situation. And Tony started questioning her relationship with Gerard, with him reassuring her that, hey, I'm still planning on leaving Allison. He kept telling Tony he loved her and that they were going to be married someday. So Tony asked for more specifics on his plan on leaving his marriage, such as when are you separating? When are you hiring a divorce attorney? Such as those things. And it didn't seem like he would really give her an answer. But Tony wasn't planning on leaving their relationship. She had been patient with him for years. And again, she wasn't looking to end it. She was just getting a bit fed up that this was continuing to go on for so long. Now, Gerard's version of what happened that last night was that he and Allison had been watching television after the kids had gone to bed. And Allison had started asking him questions about his affair. And this was suggested for them to do by their marriage counselor. Now, after a while, Gerard got tired of the questioning, going to bed, leaving Allison in the living room around 10 p.m. He claims when he got up the next day, Allison was gone. And at 7.15 a.m., he dialed triple zero which in the United States is 911. He was calm when he placed the call. And when the first officer arrived at the house and saw Gerard Baden Clay in person, he immediately called his supervisor, Sergeant Andrew Jackson. The reason? The large visible scratches that looked fresh on Gerard's face. Now, when Sergeant Jackson and his partner arrived, they had noticed an older man placing a vacuum cleaner in the back of a vehicle. This man would turn out to be Gerard's father. Now, Gerard claimed that the scratches were the result of a shaving accident. Uh, And I don't think any of the police on scene were really buying that. They looked more like fingernail scratches. One officer, if you watch the 60 Minutes episode, and it is in our show notes under resources, the one officer makes a remark like anybody that's been shaving for 20 years knows what a shaving accident is. That didn't look like a shaving accident. Also suspicious was police felt that someone had attempted to clean up the house before they arrived on scene. So it didn't help that you're seeing some guy put a vacuum cleaner in the back of the car. Sergeant Jackson decided that he was going to record his conversations with Gerard, not allow anyone to leave the premises, and declare the house and grounds a crime scene. So while he's talking to Gerard, he's also reporting that Allison is missing and calling in every available officer to begin the search, because what they're going on is at this point, she's a missing person. Now, meanwhile, Gerard is still being questioned. And even though he wasn't being difficult per se, officers had difficulty getting straight answers from him. And Gerard worked hard to make it seem like he was a very accident prone to the police. So besides the cut on his cheek, which he claimed came from a blunt razor, a shaving accident, there were cuts on his hands. And he said that he had been changing the light bulb the other day when it shattered and that's what made the cuts. So believe it or not, he also mentioned that a caterpillar had attacked him, leaving red marks over the left side of his chest. So if you watch the 60 Minutes interview, you can see a picture of this chest wound. It's in the upper left. It's about as the size of a closed fist, I would say. And you could see the red abrasions to his chest. And in the 60 minutes, the journalist asked the investigator, do caterpillars leave injuries like that? And he's like, no, 
But they did their due diligence and checked with a bug expert just to make sure. And yeah, there are no caterpillars that would attack someone like that and leave that type of injury. The police also discovered that right before Gerard had contacted them to report Allison missing, he had done a search on his home computer, and that search was on the right to remain silent. So when Allison's friends found out that Allison was missing, they immediately knew something horrible had happened and that Gerard had something to do with their friend's disappearance. They didn't believe that Allison would just take off or even that she took her own life because she would never leave her daughters. Her daughters were her world. And they had never really liked Gerard. They always felt that Allison was just too good for him. That same day that Gerard reported Allison missing, he had talked to Tony when she had called him from her conference later in the afternoon, and he told her that Allison was missing after not returning home from her walk, and because the police around, they needed to not talk for a while and not see each other. Now, Tony at the time felt that Allison may have taken off since Gerard claimed that they had not argued and at the time didn't believe Gerard had any involvement in Allison's disappearance. Tony would say in an interview that you know, she didn't hate Allison. She didn't want anything bad to happen to her. She just wanted to be with Gerard and was believing everything he was telling her. However, in the days after Allison's disappearance, Gerard would keep calling Tony. He would go out and use payphones in the hopes of not being discovered, but the police knew he was doing this. He informed Tony that the police knew about their affair and they were looking to talk to her. Now, what Gerard didn't know was that when he contacted her on one occasion, she was in the middle of her police interview. Gerard wanted to know if she had told the police they were currently seeing each other. And she told him that, yeah, I did, because it's the truth. Now, Gerard's story didn't match Tony's story as he had told police that he had had an affair with Tony, but currently, even though they were talking, they were not in a relationship together. And him and Allison's marriage was good. They were working on it. They were in counseling and he had no plans for divorce. So in the 10 days that Allison had been missing, Gerard continued to play the role of grieving husband. However, he didn't do anything to help in the search for his missing wife. He did give a TV interview with his sister at his side, saying that he had helped the police as much as he could. Meanwhile, the forensics team had descended upon the Baiting Clay residence and his real estate business, collecting laptops, computers, hard drives, any other evidence that they thought was pertinent to the investigation. They also confiscated the computers from Gerard's parents' home as he and his daughters had been staying there. And one of the pieces of evidence they collected was Gerard's razor blade, the one he said that had caused the scratches down his cheek. So when they tested the razor blade, however, there was no blood on the razor blade. However, blood was found in the holding captiva. A contact smear with streaks that started on the door and ran down to the floorboards. Blood and a strand of hair would also be found in the back of the car, and when tested, it matched Allison. So through this, investigators didn't feel that Tony had anything to do with Allison's disappearance and subsequent murder, so she was cleared. Investigators felt that only one person was responsible for Allison's murder, and that was her husband, Gerard. They even felt that the location that he had dumped her body in was chosen not only for being under a bridge and hidden from the roadway, but that he had picked the spot in the hopes that her body would wash away with rising water levels in the creek. But it did not. 
Through the investigation, police talked to a variety of individuals putting together the puzzle pieces, and one of those witnesses was Melissa Roman, who had been involved in a real estate deal with Gerard's office. Now, after the business deal had completed, Gerard had tried to get Melissa to come work for him, and when she turned him down, he had another offer for her to help him hire someone to kill his wife. Now, when she asked why little taken back by that, like, what? Why would he want to kill his wife? Gerard never answered her question and quickly changed the subject, and then they never really saw each other again. Now, another witness was a medical doctor with the Kenmore Clinic Medical Center that Gerard had visited on Saturday, April 20th at around 8.30 a.m. Gerard had booked the first appointment of the day, wanting the doctor to look at his shaving injury he had gotten that Friday morning, he said. The doctor had been told by the practice receptionist that Gerard's wife had gone missing, so she had made the appointment a little longer than a regular one in case he needed grief counseling. However, the person the doctor met was quite composed and only wanted to focus on the facial injury and seemed to be in a hurry to do so. Gerard had told the doctor that he had gotten the abrasions when he was rushing to shave, leaving the three vertical marks down the right side of his cheek, and told the doctor that he didn't notice any bleeding at first. He also told the doctor that the police told him to have his injuries documented and asked for a copy of the medical report. So the doctor had written in the statement that they could not be certain as to the cause of his facial injuries, but felt that it was unlikely they were caused by shaving and for him not to notice any bleeding since it would have taken two or more shaving motions to put all those marks on his face. Now, after the appointment, the doctor noted their observations as they felt Gerard's injury again was not caused by the razor, but looked more like scratches, just like the police did when they first showed up. And given that his wife was missing, they wanted it well documented their interactions with him that day. As Allison's body was being autopsied, Gerard had been working on collecting Allison's life insurance policy. Policies. Investigators would discover, again, that Gerard had those dire financial straits and at one point owed up towards a million dollars. Now, coincidentally, Allison's policy was worth her two policies actually, were worth nearly $800,000 to $950,000. So definitely would take a bite out of his debt. Allison's parents would be granted control of her estate eventually, including her two policies, but it would be ordered that they would be held in a trust. So the investigator's theory was that Allison had fought for her life, leaving behind those deep scratch marks on Gerard's face. But in the end, Gerard had ultimately caused her death. To her friends, the Allison they knew is described as someone who was very soft, gentle, and kind. But on that night, she fought like hell, leaving behind evidence to make sure Gerard didn't get away with it. Now, everyone thought there would be a quick arrest and conviction of Gerard Baden-Clay, but that was not the case, as the police's evidence was pretty circumstantial, and they just wanted more before going ahead and arresting him. One piece of evidence that would solidify their case against Gerard were the leaves found knotted in Allison's hair. You see, there were six different types of leaves, and only two of them were found in the Cahola Creek area, but all six types could be found in the backyard of the Baden-Clay residence. So that showed the police that there was an area in the backyard where Allison had most likely been killed. And after Gerard had killed her, he had drug her across the yard in the back patio to put her in the back of the Captiva. And in doing so, that's where she collected all the leaves in her hair. So with all the pieces of evidence that they gathered on June 13th, 2012, Gerard Baden Clay was arrested and charged with Allison's murder and interfering with a corpse. Gerard claimed his innocence, pleading not guilty, stating he would have never murdered 
his wife, as he would have also never left his three young daughters home alone that night. So investigators felt that, mm, yeah, Gerard most likely did leave his three girls unattended while he went to dispose of their mother's body. So on June 22nd, Gerard was denied bail, so he would remain in jail, though he did file another application for bail in December 2012. And this came about after the toxicology report came out that showed that Allison had traces of antidepressant drugs in her blood. To the defense, it opened the door to the possibility that Allison had taken her own life. So on March 11th, 2013, Gerard had a committal hearing. So the committal hearing in the U.S. sounds more like a preliminary hearing in our justice system. And this was to determine if there was enough evidence to proceed to a formal trial. So more than 40 witnesses would testify. The court heard the prosecution's theory that Gerard had wanted to cash in on his wife's life insurance policy to clear his debts and ultimately be with his mistress. Now, the defense denies this theory and tells the court that Allison was depressed and she was troubled by her marriage and that she may have taken her own life. The court would also hear from neighbors of the Badens Clay who had heard a woman screaming the night Allison disappeared. They would also hear from his former business partners that had known about the affair and warned Gerard he needed to pick one or the other, or that they were going to kind of get out of this situation. They were already fed up with the financial difficulties. They didn't want to be put in the middle of this anyways. The forensic accountant would also testify to Gerard's debt and noted that he owed about 300000 of that debt to various family and friends but only had about $70,000 in assets. And Tony McHugh would also testify that Gerard had contacted her and told her about lying low after his wife disappeared and about the various reasons why he couldn't divorce Allison, one of them being that he didn't have the money for the divorce. Outside of court, Gerard's family stood by him and his defense attorney told the press that he felt the hearing went in their favor. However, he was wrong. On February 3rd, 2014, Gerard's pretrial hearing takes place. Now, this trial is to clear up any disputes that the defense or the prosecution may have and to also work out any plea deals prior to trial commencing. Now, at this hearing, Allison's autopsy results are discussed as well as testimony from Baden Clay's marriage counselor. Now, this hearing continued over a period of time until June 2014 with the discussion about potential jurors. So they've decided on when they polled the jury to find out if they'd ever given any funds relating to the disappearance of Allison, or if they or their immediate family members had lived in a particular area, and if they had ever talked about Gerard's guilt or innocence. So that same month, seven men and five women, with three in reserve, are selected to serve on the jury. At the trial that started on June 10th, 2014, Allison's diaries were brought into evidence. From them, jurors could hear Allison's thoughts about her marriage and struggles, and how she wanted to make her marriage work despite Gerard's betrayal. The prosecutor's theory was again that Gerard had murdered Allison for financial gain. Now, Gerard also testified at trial on his own behalf, telling the jury his side of the story, where he admitted he was a liar with everything he said in the past. But here at trial, he claimed he was now telling the truth. So here's a little criminal discourse life tip. The first time that you tell the truth should not be why you're on trial for murder. Gerard admitted at trial to his four-year affair with Tony and other affairs as well. You see, he wasn't cheating just on his wife. He was also cheating on his mistress. But he claims that none of that mattered, as in his mind, they all meant nothing to him. In the end, the jury didn't buy what Gerard was trying to sell them. And on July 15th, he was convicted and sentenced to life imprisonment with the possibility of parole after serving, I believe, about 15 years. So you think that'd be the end of it, but it's not. In August 2015, Gerard's defense attorney filed an appeal on his behalf, this time 
with a new theory. Now they were saying that Gerard had unintentionally killed Allison during an argument and that he had panicked and tried to cover up the murder. Now, in a surprising twist, Gerard won his appeal on December 8th of that year, and instead of being convicted of murder, his conviction was changed to manslaughter, which is a much lighter sentence. The Court of Appeals stated that even though Gerard had lied about how he got the scratches on his face and tried to cover up Allison's death, there was a reasonable assumption that he was innocent of intentional murder. The court disregarded the prosecution's motive for murder that was financial gain, and his marriage difficulties were not sufficient to support a murder conviction, and that the prosecution erred when they didn't present evidence to rule out an accidental death. Now, in July 2016, the High Court, which is made up of five judges, hears the appeal from the Queensland's prosecutor's office, who argues against the downgrading of Baiting Clay's original conviction. The High Court had grilled the defense as to the change in their case from not having anything to do with Allison's murder to, oh, now she accidentally died from a blow to her head after falling during their argument. In August, the High Court, in a unanimous decision, reinstated Gerard Baden's Clay's original conviction. They ruled that the appeals court had erred when they accepted the alternative theory as to Allison's death that was not even in evidence at the original trial, and that it's not the prosecution's responsibility to rule out an accidental death for the jury, as Baden Clay's defense at the time was that Gerard had nothing to do with Allison's death and had no idea how she died. Don't forget, Gerard had taken the stand in his own defense, denying he had anything to do with Allison's murder. So today, Gerard Baden Clay continues to sit in prison. Now, through the support and dedication of Allison's friends and family, a foundation was started in her name, the Allison Baden Clay Foundation. And we have a link to that foundation's website in our show notes. This foundation looks to bring a spotlight to the different forms of domestic and family violence through education and support. In July of every year, they have an annual campaign, Strive to Be Kind. It takes place to not only raise awareness for others, but to encourage acts of kindness. On July 30th of 2021, so just in a few months, they are going to have the Strive to Be Kind Day. On that day, wear yellow, decorate your workspace or offices, and do simple acts of kindness. All right, everyone, that is our episode. Thank you for listening. If you've liked what you've heard, we only ask that you leave us a review on whatever platform you listen to us on. And if you leave a five-star review, we'd appreciate it even more. So as always, if you see something, say something. You might have that missing piece of the puzzle it takes to solve a crime. Like the doctor who noted that, "Mm, I don't believe there's scratches. Or the woman who said, yeah, he asked me about um, hiring a hitman to kill his wife. And as always, we want you to stay safe. Vaccines are rolling out. I hope you've gotten yours or you're in line to get yours so that hopefully by summer things can start getting back to normal. And hopefully next time Maddie is back with us again. And that will actually be an episode that she's doing. And I have no idea what case she's researching right now. So until next time, guys. Bye. Bye.